Hi, I'm Lara. Welcome to Factor Fiction. This is Fiblet number three of season two. In the most recent edition of Factor Fiction, I told the story of Pinkerton operative Kate Warren. Now, as I said then, newspapers publish some pretty fun stories about the Pinkertons, and I thought I'd share three real news articles and, of course, one fictional article about their exploits. Listen closely to what I say. Is it fact or fiction? Ready to play? Welcome back. Put on your listening ears and pay attention. One of these stories is my own little fiction. At the end of the episode, I'll give you a chance to make your choice, and then I'll let you know which of the stories is real. Choice number one. Pinkertons apprehend purse thief. Chicago Tribune, 12 May, 1859, page two. Dr. James Hubert McVicker, proprietor of the McVicker Theater located on West Madison Street, had occasion to applaud the exploits of Messrs. Allen Pinkerton and Company. After a performance of William Shakespeare's Richard III on Friday, May 5th, a number of ladies reported that the contents of their reticules had disappeared during the performance. McVicker contacted his good friend Allen Pinkerton. The detectives lost no time in pursuing the purveyor of the purse's possessions when he sent his best detectives to question McVicker's employees. Suspicion immediately fell upon the woman charged with keeping the coats and belongings of those watching the entertainment. However, she presented herself as a respectable character devoted to protecting the garments and baggage in her charge. Detectives soon found themselves investigating the vestibule where the vestments were held for the theater patrons. What they found was astonishing to all, especially James McVicker. Someone had built a false panel in the back of the closet, allowing them to enter and exit at will with whatever they wished to take. Once they discovered the method by which the thieves garnered their goods, the detectives replaced the cloakroom concierge with a Pinkerton agent and nabbed the thief as he attempted to grab a purse during a subsequent performance. Gerald G. Winters was arrested and is now at the Cook County Jail. Detectives are still working to discover how Winters created his hiding hole and what he did with the stolen items. Choice number two. Juvenile Depravity, Chicago Tribune, 19 November, 1863, page 4. For some time past, J.J. Kearney, bookseller, 167 South Clark Street, has been missing albums, prayer books, etc. from his store, but could find no clue to the thief or thieves. The rear door would frequently be found unbolted in the morning and goods missing, entrance having evidently been affected with a key at the front. For the past two weeks, he has missed money from his till. Finding the leak was becoming serious. He set to work to discover its whereabouts. He was led to suspect two boys, Charles Nugent and Thomas Westendorf, both very respectably connected, who were usually hanging about the store late each afternoon. Securing the services of Officer Hayde of Pinkerton's detectives, the two set to work to ferret the matter out. Marked money was placed in the drawer, seven dollars of which was taken on Friday night. On Saturday night, Westendorf was seen to take three dollars from the drawer, On Monday night, $10 of marked money was placed in the drawer, $8 of which was taken by Nugent. These robberies were usually effected while Mr. Kearney was at supper. On Monday evening, Mr. Kearney ostensibly started for supper, but really posted himself at the rear door, where he could have a full view of everything in the store, while Officer Hayde took a like position at the front. Very soon, Westendorf was seen to engage the attention of the clerk, 
and Nugent started twice for the money drawer, but his intentions were frustrated by the entrance of customers. At the third attempt, however, he reached the drawer and took the money as above described. On Tuesday morning, the boys were arrested and the marked money found upon them. And upon Nugent was found a key which fitted the front door of the store. They were brought before Justice Miller, who sent them to the Reform Commissioners. Westendorf, who was about 15 years of age, was sent to the Reform School. But Nugent, being nearly 17, was out of the reach of the Commissioners and was again brought into the police court yesterday. In the course of the investigation before Justice MacDonald, it appeared that the friends of the boys went to Kearney and offered to make good his losses if he would not prosecute, which he at first agreed to. But for some reason, the prosecution was pushed forward. Nugent was consigned to the Catholic asylum, it appearing that he was too young to be sent to the penitentiary if convicted. The boys are apparently bright and intelligent and should know better than to be engaged in such discreditable proceedings. Nugent especially wears a jaunty air and displayed considerable impertinence to Commissioner Williams. Mr. Kearney estimated his losses, direct and incidental by these robberies, at about $350. Sixteen albums, costing $375 to $4 each, were among the articles stolen. We trust the boys will return to the world improved in morals and habits. Choice number three. An old rogue caught. The Rock Island Argus, 9 March, 1857, page 2. A check clerk by the name of Bassett at the freight house of the Mississippi and Missouri Railroads in this city was arrested on Monday noon under the following circumstances. For a long time, articles of baggage and of freight had been missed from the cars and freight house of this railroad, and none could tell who was the thief. This annoyance became so frequent that it aroused the agents of the company to concert measure to detect the offender. Messrs. Pinkerton and Company, Detective Police of Chicago, were invoked, and they at once laid their plans. A trunk containing ladies' shoes, overcoat, and other articles was prepared, with a list of every article so marked that it would at once be recognized. This trunk was forwarded to Rock Island by express. There it was carelessly thrown upon a carload of corn and brought to Davenport. The detective laid in wait for further developments. About eight o'clock on Saturday evening, the detective, while lying pancake fashion in the yard of the depot, saw Bassett enter the car and select such of the goods from the trunk as were most convenient, putting on the overcoat and stuffing it within with other articles. The next Monday morning, measures were taken to pounce upon him and his spoils, but before this was done, he slipped a trunk and valise upon the early train going to Chicago and sent them forward while he went out to Cedar River, returning at noon when he was nabbed. A telegraph to Chicago stopped his trunks on their arrival, and in his baggage were found a number of articles with the peculiar mark of the detective upon them. Among other things found was a letter from his sister, written in an elegant style, rehearsing some of his former crimes, rejoicing at his escape from Muscatine Jail, and earnestly imploring him to lead a new life and try to regain a lost character. It seems that he is an old rogue and was precisely in the spot where he could pillage without fear. But the ways of villains are dangerous, especially when old Pinkerton of Chicago is about. Bassett was held to answer and committed to jail for want of bail. Choice number four. A few minutes before seven o'clock yesterday morning, Officer Alan Pinkerton, special agent in the detective service of the post office department, in company with Deputy Sheriff Bulkley, arrested at the corner of Clark and Washington Streets a young man named Theodore F. Denniston, a clerk in the Chicago post office, on a warrant for robbing the United States mail. 
Denniston had been a clerk in the post office for about a year. He is a brother of Perry Denniston, who, it will be recollected, was arrested some time ago and held to bail for a precisely similar crime. His occupation in the office was also the same as that of his brother, to wit, the piling and arranging of letter packages in the process of distribution. The complaints, which have for several months reached the department in Washington in regard to the loss of money letters which in course of transit would pass through the Chicago post office, caused the most stringent instruction to be sent to Officer Pinkerton and to W.J. Brown, Esquire of Indianapolis, special mail agent for Indiana and Illinois, to discover, if possible, the cause of the evil. For a long time, the energies of both these officers, but especially of Mr. Pinkerton, have been engaged in that direction. The plans resorted to, for detection, it is unnecessary to detail, being similar to those which on a previous occasion were narrated to our readers. Suffice it to state that suspicion was directed to Denniston from observing his expensive habits to indulge in which he never appeared to want for means. At the same time, he was receiving a salary of only $500 per year and had no other visible source of revenue. For two months, Denniston had been under close surveillance. During the past two weeks, Pinkerton has followed and watched him incessantly, scarcely allowing him to pass out of his sight. Within that time, Denniston was seen to go to several banking houses and exchange money. At Munford and Brothers, Huntington and Companies, P. Woodward and Gwen, Day and Companies, he thus exchanged over $130, which Pinkerton, following him, immediately afterward redeemed with other money, thus preserving the identical stolen money. On comparing it with the description and the complaints which had been sent to Washington and returned to Pinkerton and Brown, they were enabled to identify every banknote as having been abstracted from letters. The pursuit of Denniston was kept up. So closely and cautiously was he watched that, although himself profoundly ignorant that even a thought of suspicion lurked in any mind against him, the eye of Pinkerton was upon him even in the sleeping chamber of his mistress, where he often passed the night. Denniston designed to leave the city this morning, to spend the fourth at the residence of his parents in the state of New York. Fully satisfied of his guilt, Pinkerton determined to arrest him before his departure, and carried out his determination as stated yesterday morning. When arrested, Denniston betrayed his guilt by his violent agitation, and by an effort which he made to throw away a couple of gold dollars then in his possession. He was conducted to jail, where, upon searching him, the officers found only six dollars in banknotes. Officers Pinkerton and Bulkley then went to his boarding house and searched his apartment. In a small portable writing desk were found $100 in gold and $25 in paper. They examined his trunks but found no money or other thing to throw further light upon the matter of his robberies. The room was also thoroughly searched, but nothing found. It then occurred to Pinkerton to examine certain pictures which hung upon the walls. One removing the backboard from a painter lithograph of the Highland Lovers, what should be revealed but a mass of banknotes carefully plated beneath it against the back of the lovers. On counting it, the amount was found to be $900. The Indian warrior was found to be the possessor of $1,000, concealed in a like manner, and the Virgin Mary was delivered at $1,400. But worse than all this, the sum of $300 was found concealed in the case of a daguerreotype miniature of Deniston's own mother. Altogether, the money found in Denniston's room amounted to $3,741. Since his arrest, Denniston had confessed to Mr. Brown and Mr. Cook that the money was abstracted by him from letters which he had stolen from the mails. He also says that he has been in the habit of stealing every package which came into his hands, which he supposed to contain any money. He never stopped to read any of the letters, but abstracted the money and destroyed both letter and post bill immediately. 
The only package which he claims to know the sender was one containing $200 mailed by Prushing and Wadsworth bankers in this city. The total amount which Deniston has stolen during his connection with the post office, it is impossible to ascertain, but it is thought by the officers who traced out his guilt would amount to $8,000 or $10,000. He has for a long time been a type in extravagance of what are known as fast young men. May his fate be a warning to all who propensity for rapid progression would tempt them beyond the bottom of their own purses. For his energy, skill, and success in tracing out and detecting this extraordinary case of post office robbery, Mr. Pinkerton deserves unqualified praise. He had before proved himself to be one of the most expert detective officers in the country, and this case will add to his already well-earned reputation. To keep his eye constantly on his victim and place himself on repeated occasions in the very bedroom where he slept, without causing alarm, argues a skill in police tactics which few men possess. Well, folks, those are your choices. Take a few minutes to ponder them while I read an advertisement from page 7 of the November 14, 1884 edition of the Chicago Tribune. Sneeze, sneeze, sneeze until your head seems ready to fly off, until your nose and eyes discharge excessive quantities of thin, irritating, watery fluid, until your head aches, mouth and throat parched and blood at fever heat. This is an acute catarrh and is instantly relieved by a single dose and permanently cured by one bottle of Sanford's Radical Cure for Catarrh. Complete treatment with inhaler, $1. One bottle Radical Cure, one box catarrhal solvent, and one improved inhaler in one package may now be had of all druggists for $1. Ask for Sanford's Radical Cure. The only absolute specific we know of, medical times. The best we have found in a lifetime of suffering, the Reverend Dr. Wigan from Boston. After a long struggle with guitar, the radical cure has conquered, the Reverend S.W. Monroe, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I have not found a case that it did not relieve at once. Andrew Lee, Manchester, Massachusetts. Potter Drug and Chemical Company, Boston. <laughs> the cure for the common guitar. Now, I had heard of guitar, but it's not a word in common usage here in the Midwestern U.S. So in case you are as ignorant as I, guitar is defined as an excessive discharge or buildup of mucus in the nose or throat associated with inflammation of the mucous membrane. So just as the ad says, it's basically a bad runny nose. You may think it's warm and runny, but it's not. (laughs) LOL. Enough silliness. I know you're all listening to learn if you chose the fictional article from the actual ones. Which one was it? Choice number one, Pinkerton's apprehend purse thief. Choice number two, juvenile depravity. Choice number three, wholesale post office robbery. Or choice number four, an old rogue quack cot. Drum roll, please. Choice number one, Pinkerton's apprehend purse thief was the story I made up. Although McVicker's Theater, the setting for the crime, was an actual place that opened in Chicago on November 5th, 1857. And according to Wikipedia, the theater was the leading stage for comedic plays in Chicago's early years. It often hosted performances by Edwin Booth, who married McVicker's daughter and was once targeted there in an attempted murder. Although destroyed in two fires, including the Great Chicago Fire, McVicker's remained an operating theater until 1984. It was demolished the next year. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another full-length episode. Until then, listen carefully because it's tricky to know if it's fact or fiction. Goodbye!